This is an ABC podcast. In Western Australia, police are making an all-out effort to find out who was responsible for blowing up part of the woodchip loading facility at Bunbury Harbour. On the 19th of July, 1976, a car loaded with gelignite was driven to the newly opened woodchip terminal in Bunbury, in the southwest of WA. In the explosion set off by two masked men, the new $14 million loading wharf was severely damaged and houses were shaken six miles away. A security guard was held at gunpoint, bound and gagged. Police have set up roadblocks throughout the area and have been interviewing large numbers of people known to have strong feelings against the woodchip industry. From bombings to logging vigilante groups to celebrity protesters, WA's forest protest movement has been long, passionate and occasionally dangerous. But in September 2021 came a landmark decision. The WA government has moved to end logging in native forests by 2024. We're going to put that in place to preserve these beautiful, magnificent, wonderful areas for future generations of West Australians. Much to the relief of forest campaigners. It's a major announcement. It's an historic moment. And we congratulate everybody who's been involved in this very long fight over many decades. But for some, it's a bittersweet victory. It's great that Mark McGowan has said that logging of native forests will end, but why did it take so long? Hello, I'm Kirsty Melville, and welcome to The History Listen, where, in light of this announcement, Fiona Pepper meets those who've dedicated decades of their lives to saving the incredible forests of Australia's southwest. Right at the bottom of WA, tucked into the southwest edge of the country, you'll find huge stands of Jarrah, Tingle and Carry forests. This southwest pocket has more than 6,000 species of native plants and 100 native mammals, birds, frogs and reptiles. And most of these species aren't found anywhere else in the world. And I was lucky enough to grow up here, so I'm very familiar with these spectacular forests. And so is botanist and local farmer Dr Joanna Young. The biodiversity of the southwest, it is incre- it's significant. It is, you know, one of the most diverse areas on this planet, and that's why it's been recognised as an international biodiversity hotspot. But since the mid-1800s, this biodiversity hotspot has been logged, cleared and burnt. I remember going into one forest in Sharp and I just stood there and cried. This glorious forest turned into a trashed mess. And for what? You know, for what? But, you know, you just stand there and cry. I can't save you, mate. I can't save you. Down it goes. That's Beth Schultz. She's been a full-time forest activist since the mid-70s. Every room in her Perth home is floor-to-ceiling, chock-full of documents and articles about native forests. But she came across the campaign purely by accident. I remember in 1975, a friend and I, we thought we were going to a PNC meeting. Beth was the mother of three young kids at the time, so that made sense. But as it turned out... It wasn't a PNC meeting at all. They were young blokes with long hair and beards and smoking pot and they were going to stop wood chipping and save the Shannon Basin. 
Beth and her friend had stumbled upon the very first meeting of the campaign to save native forests. So it's 1975 and this meeting's been organised to raise community awareness about the new Wood Chipping Industry Agreement Act, an act supported by both sides of politics. Basically, it was a 15-year commitment to export 750,000 tonnes of wood chips every year from the southwest town of Bunbury to Japan to make paper. Why were you so concerned about the southwest forests? Kerry especially is incredibly beautiful with its changing bark colour from season to season, from shiny white to salmon coloured as it loses its bark. And, and the, the understory, when it's in bloom, it is just beautiful. And the Kerry forest sings. It's a singing forest. It's a beautiful forest. And it, it just grabs you. You know, to take all those trees away, to grind them up for something as ephemeral as paper, you know, it's just so wrong. Former member of the WA Greens Party, Giz Watson, was only a teenager at the time, but she was equally horrified. Look, I think this was major because it put the destruction of the forests into a kind of industrial scale. Logging wasn't new to the southwest of WA. For decades, local mills had been central to timber towns in the southwest like Manjimup, Pemberton and my hometown of Denmark. But this deal with Japan, it took logging to a whole new level. And it was another step from, yes, we are logging magnificent trees for sawn timber. This is logging magnificent trees for what in effect will be a waste product in a couple of years. The WA state government saw this new agreement as an opportunity for economic development of the southwest. But it came at a time when environmental issues were starting to make headlines around the country. Not least globally, there was a growing environmental awareness across a whole range of issues and forests were definitely one of them. So how did you sort of harness those feelings that these beautiful trees shouldn't be lost to wood chips? I started attending meetings with the Campaign to Save Native Forests. I realised that if we were going to be able to try and impact the decision and protect forests, we needed to organise together. Two distinct groups quickly formed to try and save the forests from wood chipping. But then, in 1976, very early on in the campaign, the bombing of the Bunbury wood chip terminal. An extreme protest that neither organisation had predicted or condoned. At this stage, there's no estimate of how much damage was actually caused to the loading facilities. In the meantime, police have not discounted the possibility that the bombers will strike again and massive security precautions have been taken at all woodchip facilities. The Bunbury bombing was considered the first case of eco-terrorism in Australian history. The bombers, Southwest locals John Chester and Michael Habjorn, were each sentenced to seven years jail. What I gleaned from talking to people was that here were a couple of guys who got angry and upset and decided they wanted to take direct action. And they didn't do that in consultation or as part of a broader forest campaign. John Chester later said he was prepared to die for the forests in order to preserve nature for his children. But the forest campaign community, including Beth Schultz, felt the bombing had done nothing but tarnish its cause. It was so stupid and incompetent and all that it did it was achieve a backlash and we were tarred with the same brushes as though we had done it. It also had a very galvanising effect on those of us who were planning further forest campaigning uh, to 
redouble our efforts to make sure that what we did was non-violent direct action. And we actually invited a couple of people to come. I think they actually came from the States, from sort of civil rights movement, where there was a long tradition of non-violence, a la Martin Luther King, etc., and uh, said, please come and train us and give us the information we need to run a campaign, because we were definitely in there for the long haul. This training was in non-violent direct action, and the philosophy came to underpin the fight to save southwest forests. And after the bombing, this was a smart move, given the additional scrutiny from WA police and government. There's no doubt we were being phone-tapped, meetings were being recorded and all those kind of things. But I think there was perhaps a heightened concern that direct action might be violent. And we made a point of, I would say, sort of doing it by the book. You've got to remember also this is in the time when the state under Sir Charles Court were also targeting unions and any public demonstrations. So it was a pretty strong-handed approach to so-called law and order. Because the penalties were quite high, both in, a, in terms of fines and imprisonment. While huge stands of carry and marry continued to be felled for wood chips, the forest activists became more and more concerned about another forest, 130 kilometres south of Perth. Yeah, so in 78, the Campaign to Save Native Forests made a decision to shift some of their campaigning to the Jarrah Forest. Arguably not as spectacular as the carry. Jarrah forests are unique to southwest WA. The ecosystem supports many endemic species, like the Carnaby's cockatoo. But in WA... The best Jarrah grows on the best bauxite. Bauxite is the ore that makes aluminium. And since the mid-60s, the American mining company Alcoa has been mining it in the southwest of the state. Now, mining wipes out entire Jarrah forest ecosystems above and below ground. In 1978, it became clear that the WA Cork government was set to approve Alcoa's plan to expand its bauxite mine. It meant even more Jarrah forest would be lost. So the activists started their biggest campaign yet, and a young Giz Watson was on the front line. The focus would be to prevent the construction of the new refinery at Wagerup. And we said, OK, you know, it's got to be direct action to demonstrate that the level of public concern about protecting Jarrah was there. And we had a clear plan that if the work activity started on site, we would be obstructing it. In 1979, over two weekends, activists occupied the proposed refinery site. It became known as the Wagerup Occupation. 16 people trained in non-violent resistance techniques went onto the site and planned to remain for three or four days. What we have here today is dedicated people who are willing to face prosecution and arrest for their opposition to this environmentally destructive industry. And the protesters did obstruct workers from doing their jobs by standing in front of moving machinery. I was just so frightened that I thought, well, I just have to stay here, I can't run now. If I just stay here, he'll really, he will stop, he'll have to stop. And eventually when the, the mud got sort of halfway up my leg, he did stop. It was just such a terrifying thing. Giz and dozens of others were arrested. 
but the charges were later dropped. But even with widespread media coverage, the campaign was unsuccessful. There was, I think, a great deal of sadness and disappointment that we hadn't been able to stop that and we felt that we'd given it our best and put ourselves on the line to do that, but we gave it a good crack. Despite the wager up setback, in the late 1980s, after a 13-year battle, campaigners had a win with the creation of a 500-square-kilometre national park southeast of Manjimup. But it was in the 1990s that the fight to save the southwest forest really began. We had this PR man, and he said, it's the old growth, stupid. So we focused on what it was and what it meant and what and why we wanted to save it. With that, the Save the Old Growth Forest campaign kicked off. The WA Forest Alliance brought together many different community groups so they could all fight as one. The movement gained momentum in both the forest and in the city, and protesters put their bodies on the line again. My name's Jess Beckling, and I'm the campaign director for WA Forest Alliance. But back in 97, Jess was a politically engaged uni student looking for purpose. There's only been a couple of times in my life when I've arrived somewhere and it's felt as if I've kind of clicked into place and Giblet was one of those places. Giblet is an area of old-growth Carrie, Jarrah and Mary Forest, about 15 kilometres north of Pemberton. It's beautiful country with some of the tallest and oldest trees in the state. But in the 90s, this area was being logged. So protesters had set up a permanent blockade to try and protect the remaining forest. Jess went to a picnic at the blockade and it was then that she decided to really commit to this campaign. The picnic kind of packed up and left and my friend got back on the bus to go back and I put my swag on and took it off and put it on and took it off and then eventually decided to stay and, um, and then ended up living in those old growth blockades from Giblet and then through various other camps for the next three and a half years. What was it like living in the forest for that amount of time? It was uh, three and a half years of an incredibly rich but also very challenging time in my life. It poured and poured and poured with rain. We would just be collecting firewood from the driest places that we could find in the forest and lighting very smoky fires under low tarpaulins and all of our cooking, all of our living was underneath tarpaulins. We were kids. Most of us didn't even have swags. We had amazing donations from locals. We were, you know, showered in amazing food. In some of the camps, we were really well set up and, you know, we even had pretty good makeshift kitchens. But in others, it was really close to the floor kind of living. These protesters were living in very basic camps in isolated forests for years at a time. And they were busy, actively defending forests, We were sitting in trees um, and we were blockading by uh, locking onto machinery on roads. Whenever we were selecting tactics, it was about lasting the longest and covering the biggest possible area of forest. And it was also a way of telling a really good story because the photographs were amazing and uh, you'd immediately get media attention. I remember visiting one of these forest blockades as a kid. There were lots of people gathered under these makeshift camps, dancing and playing bongos. But at the time, I had no idea how elaborate these operations really were. There were platforms high up in the treetops where protesters lived for weeks at a time. And then 
there were the roadblocks. Road dragons were probably the favoured tactic and that's a car body that's had the wheels taken off and then it's cemented down into the road and underneath the car body there's a metal pipe going down into the road that you can put your arm down inside and lock yourself down into a, a bar that's at the bottom of that pipe. So then when the police arrive they have to cut the car body in half and remove that first and then there's a person on the road with their arm down into the road, the police can't pull their arm out. The person can unclip themselves, but the police can't get their arm in to unclip them. So then they have to dig around this great big cement contraption and pull that whole thing out before they can get the person out of the way. So if the cement's really dry, that can keep the road unpassable for eight or ten hours. Protesters didn't have access to machinery, so all of this work was done entirely by hand. To set up a roadblock like that would take all night. We'd start as soon as it was dark and we'd be digging and pushing up poles until easy three, four in the morning. Um, we lost a lot of shovels because every time you'd, someone thought they'd see car lights or hear a car, everyone would chuck their shovel and then run. We were always saying, run with your shovel, but it n- never caught on. This type of protest was considered non-violent direct action. But the person clipped into the roadblock was still breaking the law for stopping workers from doing their job. Thousands of people were arrested over those couple of years and it was just voluntary. Somebody would say, I'm willing to be arrested and, you know, we'd all be delighted because that was what we were in short supply of, is people who were willing to actually get into the car body. These protests were undeniably effective, but it meant timber workers couldn't get their work done. You've got to remember that a lot of these people had worked in the bush most of their life and that was their only jobs. There was no real other options at that time. I mean, the timber industry was a big employer and a really good employer, you know, so the, the people enjoyed their work, they worked hard, and these protesters wanted to take their job from them, you know, and, of course, they get upset. This is Greg Smethers. He lives in Manjimup and runs a timber hauling business. His family's been working in the timber industry for generations. Well, our main task is we, we fall the trees produce a saw log or a chip log and we pick that log up, drag it into the land, load it onto the trucks and then send it off to the mill. We do all of that. We do the whole lot. Greg's worked in the industry for 59 years. So I'm curious to know what it was like during the 90s when forest blockades were at their peak. The protesters were illegally on our work site and uh, we're quite within our rights to work but of course you can't work if you're going to hurt someone so... Certainly confronting to, to me anyway. I didn't like it. You know, I didn't like people threatening people. You know, the protesters sort of look at us like we're, we're the devils. We're not. We're just normal people working. But there were some timber workers who were in support of the protesters, even secretly providing crucial intel. I remember in Lane Forest having a timber worker come out who was resigning from his position because he was so affected by what he was seeing on in the forest, and he gave us a lot of information. So while protesters were occupying the forest, activists in Perth were also playing a vital role, although they were a little more law-abiding. Beth Schultz again. It's so ingrained to people of my generation to obey the law that... <laughs> no, I've, I've never participated in any non-violent direct action, no. The activists were down doing tree sets, blockading in the forest, and we worked together and and strategised. 
by doing things like lobbying, applying for injunctions in the Supreme Court and organising media stunts like this one. It's about as far removed from the NBA as you could get. Chicago Bulls star Luke Longley spent last night sleeping in a tree in the state southwest. Rip, rip, ship, turn it in the and country music singer John Williamson got behind the giblet blockade too. But when West Coast Eagles coach Mick Malthouse got behind the cause, West Australians really started taking notice. So he stood under this carrot tree, looking up at the carrot tree, and this photo ends up on the front page of the Australian weekend magazine. Mick Malthouse, Save the Old Growth Forest. Mick, who was the, the, the folk hero in Western Australia because the Eagles were winning, if he thinks this way, it must be right. With high-profile protesters on side and growing community awareness, the Forest Alliance was gaining political momentum too. The political part of the story that I'm involved with is in 97 I was elected into the Legislative Council. You can't underestimate the impact of taking the, the campaign into the parliament. It's significant. But not everyone was happy about it. I remember being challenged, how can you support people breaking the law if you are actually a lawmaker? <laughs> Which I think was an interesting challenge. And, you know, to me... It runs deeper than that, and that is that there's a principle that if the law is unjust and, and the law is ineffective in protecting the environment or higher principles, which I think are important, then, in fact, it's your duty to break the law. And I'll, I will support people who do. Then, in 1999, as the logging debate raged on, Federal Forestry Minister Wilson Tucky was accused of encouraging timber workers to incite violence. I quoted some words from Phantom of the Opera, there will be war between us. And sure enough, a fortnight later, what followed was a kind of war. We had heard word that there was this kind of plan being hatched on the part of some loggers in Manjimup to come to the Wattle Forest camp and evict us. Emma Belfield spent years living in forest blockades and in August 99, she was occupying old-growth forests near Northcliffe, known as Wattle Block, when she heard about this impending attack. It was nerve-wracking. We were worried and we were just planning to do the best we could to talk to people and de-escalate the situation. Then, on the morning of the 21st of August... Utes and Land Cruisers rolled up to our camp, around about 40 people, many of them wearing balaclavas. There were people that were pulling baseball bats and axes out of their ute trays. They were yelling, it was frightening, and they were telling us to leave in no uncertain terms. Emma had a dictaphone and recorded the confrontation. The court heard six men armed with a baseball bat and an axe ransacked the camp. They turned a caravan office upside down, smashed a water tank and threatened protesters with violence. I think a lot of people who were perhaps on the fence were really unimpressed at the violence and so through their support in with conservationists. And with the state election looming in 2001. In the year that followed, particularly the West Australian community were saying to the state government and indeed the opposition, 
you've got to sort this out. This can't go on in this way. We need a plan for the logging industry and we need to see far, far more of these magnificent old-growth forests properly protected. Opposition leader Jeff Gallup latched onto the Save the Old Growth Forest campaign as a key election promise. And he won. My very, very good friends, what a proud moment for the Labor Party it is. To... In, listening, in listening to the people, we discovered that there are very, very important issues in health, in our education system, in terms of saving our old-growth forests. Jess Beckling clearly remembers that election night. I'm not sure, in WA anyway, that there's been any other elections won on the basis of a major environmental issue. True to his word, just weeks after becoming Premier, Jeff Gallup set aside thousands of hectares of old-growth forest. It was an incredible victory. We secured 230,000 hectares of really precious forest. There was a lot to be very thankful for. But it wasn't that easy. What was or wasn't considered old-growth forest became a major sticking point. Well, the old-growth definition was written by foresters in the department in the late 90s, and it was written in such a way to minimise the amount of forest that could be recognised as old-growth. And what it meant in the carry forest particularly was if there is even one stump in a two-hectare area, so one old tree has been cut down maybe by a couple of dudes with a cross-cut saw 100 years ago, leaving behind a perfectly intact old-growth forest, that one stump disqualifies those two hectares from old-growth status. So what it meant was that old-growth forests had largely been protected, but not fully protected. So logging of native forests has continued since 2001. And for the past 20 years, the WA Forest Alliance has fought against it. So on the 8th of September, Premier McGowan announced a complete end to all native forest logging by January 2024. Plan to preserve hundreds of thousands of hectares of native bushland as part of That's the an outcome. absolutely massive breakthrough, both in terms of policy and in terms of culture. It was such a relief to hear the Premier say that the climate and biodiversity values of the forests must take precedence and that they're profoundly important and must be protected for future generations. That means that we have shifted, politically speaking, our mindset from the forests being there for extractive purposes to being recognised and valued for their intrinsic values. That's a huge breakthrough. And so finally, for those forest campaigners, they've achieved what they set out to do decades ago. I think quite a few of us were a bit stunned, to be honest, because we've been doing it for so long, you know, and here it was an outcome that, that is, again, unprecedented in Australian environmental history. And we were delighted. How have you maintained that motivation? <laughs> Love of the forest, the beauty of the forest and all that stuff. But what's kept me going is rage. But it also comes with all of that grief catching up. I've seen so many forests obliterated so many birds lose their homes, nesting hollows crushed under logging machines. And I fought so hard for them and there are a lot that we lost. And it's in this time of that finally ending, that, that grief 
And that feeling of having failed those areas all catches up with you. And you've been listening to Fight for the Forest, produced by Fiona Pepper. The sound engineer was Richard Gervin. The supervising producer was me, Kirsty Melville. And you've been listening to the History Listen. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.